0: Uh, We are in part three, DNA of the church, entitled today, When the Church Gathers. Just as a reminder, or welcome to the middle section of our congregation, Uh, we are currently in a uh, summer series about the DNA of the church. So far, we have looked at who and what is the church. We have noted that the church who is called the bride of Christ and the body of Christ should gather together, gather together weekly on the Lord's day as today. And when the church meets, we should observe baptism and the Lord's supper, which are the two ordinances Jesus gave us. This week, we will look at what else the early church did and how we are called to pattern our church, cornerstone, or as Christians in local churches, from that model. As usual, to do so, uh, we will look or observe certain sections of the New Testament in order to help inform our doctrines of the church. Lord willing, that examination will provide us with application. Our passage for today is Acts 2. 22 through 47. However, for time's sake, we're going to thin out that reading just a bit, and our main emphasis of preaching today will be verses 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42, sorry, Acts 2, starting in verse 22. The Apostle Peter preached on Pentecost. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up. Ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Therefore, Let all of the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. Baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common That is able to save. For it is the only name above earth or under heaven whom you have provided in your foreknowledge as our Messiah and Lord through the blood of Him Jesus Christ. And God, we pray today that this message will continue not just in Cornerstone, but across the world, across the four corners of the earth. And today you would save many who listen, that they would repent and be baptized, Lord. Become followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they would be saved from this corrupt generation. God, only you were able to do that. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would move today through the preaching of your word. Amen. The last two weeks, we spent time noting that once Peter preached the redemptive plan of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The people listening were cut to the heart. And therefore, because they were cut to the heart, they were convicted, they believed, and they repented from sin. Then they were baptized, and they were added to the church. Today's focus is what they did next, beginning in verse 42. They met together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to breaking bread or the Lord's Supper. They devoted themselves to prayer. They gave to the one in need, and they worshiped God. In case you're wondering what the vision of Cornerstone is, which is weird because the whole middle section is just visiting today, but hey, in case you're wondering what the vision of Cornerstone is today, it's right here. In Acts 2, in black and white, in verses 42, well, maybe a little bit before that, through 47, these practices or elements is what we believe are necessary to build and sustain a healthy church. Therefore, we have no interest in being known for something contrary to this replica. We're not here to be relevant, secularly speaking. Our goal is It's not to cater to every notion that might possibly bring an unbeliever to Cornerstone. We're not an entertainment industry. We don't do gimmicks. We are the church, the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Charles Spurgeon said, if you have to give a carnival to get people to come to church, then you will have to keep giving carnivals to keep them coming back. Forget a carnival. We don't even have a building to offer. (laughs) And to that I say, who cares? What we do have as cornerstone that that we can offer any unbeliever or any believer, any individual who shows up on the Lord's Day on Sunday morning is a congregation who is devoted to the word of God, that is devoted to fellowshipping with one another, that is committed to the practicing baptism and the Lord's Supper, committed to prayer, to giving, and most certainly we are a people devoted to worshiping the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, The, the goal for today is to elaborate on each element that we observe in verses 42 through 47. Bar the Lord's Supper because that was last week. Point number one, the centrality of the word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Verse 42. Immediately when the church was born, they dedicated themselves to learning the Bible. They came together daily to hear and learn from the apostles. They had an appetite, a hunger to understand the scriptures, to understand what Jesus had taught them. We see they didn't just come together and say, okay now, let's be the church. Let's go love on somebody. Instead, they came together and said, Peter, Paul, Andrew, James, tell us what all of this means. And day in and day out, they met in the temple courts And the apostles did just that. Or they met in homes, day in and day out. The apostles were filling the commission that Christ gives the church in Matthew 28 to teach them to obey all things I have commanded you. Teach them to observe. And not only at the day of Pentecost was the church in Jerusalem born by the preaching of the word, but it was also built up And matured by the teaching of the word. That has not changed for us today. The church is still saved. The church is still edified. And the church still grows by hearing and responding to God's word. Now, while they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings... It is really preaching that became central to the church when they gathered on the Lord's day. We don't see that right here. We're just talking about historically. It could be helpful to distinguish what is the difference between teaching and what is the difference between preaching. Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen from Nine Marks in the book Rediscover Church over there, I think chapter 5, says that Preaching is teaching with authority. And that model of teaching with authority, they say, is patterned after Jesus himself. For after Jesus preached the Sermon of the Mount, it says that the people were amazed. Why? Because he taught as one with authority. He taught, yes, but he also called the people listening to respond to it so preaching is teaching with an exhortation in other words the, the preacher's job is to say god's word says this therefore go and do it this is what god's word means this is what it means for us now obey it now do it now follow christ as lord And Jesus isn't alone in teaching with authority because throughout time, God has called and chosen men to proclaim his word. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets proclaim, thus saith the Lord. Which is what? It's an announcement of what God has said. And it is meant anytime, thus saith the Lord. Begins a sentence or comes after. It is meant to result in a response from its listeners. And in the New Testament, we see the apostles preaching throughout it. And as the church is forming, the apostle Paul, was, as he was giving orderly instructions to the church, how a church should function, how it, how it should gather together, what the offices of the church were. He also tells his people, Timothy, to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2. And Paul also gave Timothy a warning that an age is coming, Timothy, when people will not listen to sound doctrine, apostles' teachings, the word of God, any longer. Instead, they will have itching ears and seek to find teachers who will only tell them what they want to hear. Therefore, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture with teaching and exhortation. It's not hard to see the reality of Paul's warning taking place in churches throughout the world today. They go. People choose where they go to church because of the types of messages being preached, which could be a good thing or a really bad thing. Paul's warning is saying that people are going to choose to go to certain churches because they don't teach sound doctrine. Some go. Because what the preacher says aligns with their political affiliation. Some choose a place because they'll hear a watered down message or a feel good message. Tell me how great I am. You're not. Christ is. Well, they don't say that part, though. Some, they, they just want to hear a message about themselves. Give me something. Give me something for me. Wake up Monday morning with a smile. Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. That should create joy in our hearts. Now for others, they they choose a place to go because they reject the authority of scripture and they want to hear preaching that is actually contrary to the word of God. And they applaud a message that is opposed to the teachings of Jesus. Loved ones, the preacher is not tasked with any such thing. We have been commissioned with one charge, preach the word, which means the message we proclaim to the bride of Christ had better be a message that Christ himself gave to her. We're accountable to Christ for what we preach what we teach. The, the word of God, it's, it's, it's a like a series of, of love letters, if you will, that a bridegroom wrote to his bride while he was away. And the bridegroom continued, continued to send men to deliver his message to his bride until he returned. And the bride would be overwhelmed with excitement and anticipation, waiting to hear what he had to say. Therefore, the message the men deliver to the bride had better be exactly what the bridegroom told them to tell her. We don't have the authority to tell her anything else. By the way, you're the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. First Timothy four eleven. Paul says to Timothy, command, I put that up there. command, teach these things, practice these things, be committed to them, so that your progress may be evident to all. And Timothy, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Gregory of Nazianza says the, the scope of our preaching is to provide the soul with wings, to rescue it from the world and, and, and give it to God, to watch over that which is in his image. If it abides, to take it by the hand if it is in danger to restore it, if it is ruined to make Christ dwell in the heart by the Spirit. And in a word, Gregory says, to deify and bestow heavenly bliss upon the one who belongs to the heavenly host. There's a common objection but the Bible's outdated. Times have changed. We need something more relevant, more, more practical for our modern day. Love, when we can go back to Genesis 3 and remind you that challenging the word of God was the initial sin that brought death to humanity. And the challenge itself from Satan to Eve was what? Did God really say that? Yes. You cannot have a healthy and a faithful church. We look at the DNA of the church. You cannot have a healthy and faithful church without men who will unashamedly stand before the flock of Christ and proclaim this is the word of the Lord. And we can never forget as a church, the primacy of our message is what? We preach Christ crucified. Why? Because how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, the gospel. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Why is preaching central to the church? Because that is how God speaks to his people, through his chosen agent to proclaim his word, It's how God saves his people. He rescues people. The only thing that will rescue our corrupt generation is the same message today as it was 2,000 years ago, that Christ died in the place of sinners. And if you believe that, respond in repentance. Repentance. Point two, Christian fellowship is centered on Christ. They devoted themselves to fellowship with each other. They were a community who lived intentionally to have Christian fellowship. It's common to label Christians just hanging out together or a Baptist potluck as fellowship. Even if there's an absence of Christ. Which means, what I mean by that is, they don't talk about Jesus or anything related to spiritual things, for that matter. They just hang out as friends would. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but we. I am saying we shouldn't label that as Christian fellowship. Fellowship must be centered around something. If you're familiar with. The Lord of the Rings, the heroes' relationships were centered around the ring. In fact, the first movie was even called Fellowship of the Ring. The ring was the centerpiece and foundation of their bond and their unity. It didn't matter what they didn't have in common because what they did have in common superseded everything else. In order for us to have Christian fellowship, we must center our relationships, our conversations around Jesus. He is the commonality or the centerpiece of our union. The reality of their deliberate fellowship, it should prompt us to be intentional, to have Christian fellowship with the ones that we sit next to every Sunday. Not saying these are the only people you can hang around. We aren't a cult, right? But this is your family. You're my family. I'm your family. And it doesn't matter if we have the same blood. Because we do in Christ. And the commonality of the blood we share in Christ is pure than the blood that is biological. The point is we we aren't just supposed to see each other once a week i don't have an algorithm for the correct the point is do life together we should be living our lives together and within that we should be interweaving our relationships by edifying one another with spiritual things how's your walk with christ it's horrible it's worse this week than it was a month ago last week how can I pray for you? What's the Lord teaching you right now? Dude, have you ever read some of the weird things about Lot and his daughters? They talk the word of God. I had a cackish moment. It's how the local church obtains sweet Christian fellowship. Number three, prayer seeks and calls down the will of God. Prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. My daughter Mary prayed last night that Daddy's sermon would be good. So I I hope the Lord's answering that one today. And we don't know their exact prayers, we're not told. But if they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and the apostles were teaching them, then we can, I, I'm assuming that the Lord's prayer would have been very common in the life of the early church because the disciples asked Jesus to teach us how to pray. And Jesus taught in the Sermon of the Mount, your father knows the things you need before you ask him. That's a whole other point, but just let me repeat it. Your father, God knows the things you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Just in that prayer, they would have exalted God as holy, unlike the the creator who's unlike anything in creation or that he's created. They, they, They would have asked him to complete his will on earth, not their will, not what they wanted. God, what do you want? Bring that forth from your throne onto this earth. They would have asked him to provide, provide us this day, Lord, with sustenance for, well, for food, for clothing, for shelter. Lord, whatever you have determined, may we have it today, just for today. They would have confessed their sin and asked to be freed from temptation. Deliver us, Lord. How is your prayer life? Allow me to share with you a paraphrase from one of my professors, um, Don Whitney's book on spiritual disciplines. He says, the two greatest yet most neglected disciplines of the Christian are reading the Bible and prayer. I ask, is this a coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I arrive at that conclusion. That it is no coincidence because these two practices, the Word of God and prayer, so to speak, are what contribute to the building of God's kingdom most. In Acts 6, a kerfuffle broke out between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Therefore, they they brought it to the attention of the apostles. Said, what was their response? This is a great response. We don't have time for this. Hmm? Go pick seven men to take care of this. For we must devote ourselves to what? To prayer and the ministry of the word. At just one time, because you imagine receiving that response, you come to one of the elders, hey, we got a problem between this and the widow and all this going on. I ain't got time for this. Go figure it out. Go, go. Go get Keith, Marv. But it says it pleased the people to do so. Hey, that's a good attitude. And and it says in verse six, they presented these men to the apostles, who prayed, who prayed, and laid their hands on them. And if you turn to Acts six, look at in six and verse seven. What what happened next after they prayed and laid hands on them? It says in verse seven, the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. People got saved in great numbers. And and then it says even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. God adds to his kingdom through the preaching of his word and prayer. How is our prayer life? As my Sunday school teacher once said, we are the only kingdom on earth that advances on our knees. Meaning, our prayers are a means that God uses to conquer evil on this earth. Including evil, the evil of our unbelief. Lord, I've shared the gospel with a person I love, they reject it. Nothing to do with it. They want nothing to do with your son. God, you are able, Ephesians 2, 4, to make them alive in Christ. By your spirit, who gives life and new life, would you circumcise their heart? Forgive the sinfulness of their unbelief. Call them to repent. Application. Add that to your prayer life for the ones that you love who reject the gospel. Point four. The church takes care of their own. Verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. One of the best ways I heard this explained was (laughs) the church had everything in common, not everything in communism. In other words, if, if, if we're tempted to think this verse means that we have to level out the playing field for everyone by making sure none of us have more than the other, and that, all we, need, that we, we need to be financially equal or mistaken. I, I can see how you get that in Acts 2. But if we turn to Acts 5, we can see when Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember them, they sell some property in Acts 5, right? But then they lie about it. They lie to Peter when he asks what does Peter say? You could have kept whatever amount you wanted to. You could have given as little as you wanted. Nothing for that matter. Right? You weren't required to give everything you sold. But you lied. And then Peter says, You didn't lie to me, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then their lives were taken. That's an interesting Sunday school lesson. We'll move to Corinthians 2 9. Paul says to the Corinthians, God doesn't want us to give under compulsion. Just give because you're obligated. All Christians give. Therefore, I just got to give. I don't want to do it. He says, God wants a cheerful giver, which means the amount that we are commanded to give in the New Testament is whatever that we've decided in our heart. Now, that doesn't get us off the hook from giving. We should give. And we should help those in need. Especially In our church, if we find ourselves reluctant to do so, all the time, it would be good to go before the Father in private and and say, God, why am I saving up for an earthly kingdom instead of investing in a heavenly one? Now, I I don't personally know, well, it depends what wealth rate or ratio I'm compared to, but I don't personally know what it's like to have a lot of money. But that does not prohibit me from saying the wealth God gives us is not intended to be hoarded. It is meant to be invested in his kingdom and to help those who are in need. Qualification. Does not mean it is a sin to save money. Does not mean it is a sin to do nice things or take a nice trip with the money that you have earned. It's not what I'm saying. Don't think about it like that. Here's where the happy heart comes from, here's where the joy comes from, the understanding. That you, if you have been provided by the grace of God to be wealthy beyond measure, that you have been picked as a chosen instrument by the hands of God to help the person in need next to you. That's special. I don't think I was picked for that because I'm not responsible enough to do that. I'm not on that level. For those with less, don't think that those with more can do greater because you're less off financially. Mark 12, 41 through 44, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything All she had to live on. I'd love to ask her. I'm going to ask her one day. What were you thinking? Giving up everything you had left. Coins at that. I don't even know if they make coins in America anymore. But how did you plan on paying rent or buying food? Or any other bills you had back in first century AD, and I assume she's going to say to me, because I knew, Timothy, that whatever I sowed on earth would also be reaped in heaven. There's a greater investment to be made than this earth. Last of all, verse 47 The church can only be satisfied in Christ, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. It's simple. There cannot be a church if the object of their worship is not God. God wants worshipers. Which unsound doctrine can complicate. Worshiping God can be complicated due to unsound doctrine. God does not accept all worship. The worship he desires and the worship he demands must be produced from truth. And that truth must be produced from his divine revelation. The woman at the well says, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews, saying to Jesus, say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's not popular in society today, even among Evangelicals, to say that God does not desire worship that is just basically based solely on who we think God is or who we'd like God to be. How many times have you heard someone quote how God has acted from scripture and someone says, I don't like to think of God like that. Well, that is who God is, who he has revealed himself to be. We don't worship false gods. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true and living God. We must root our affections in the actuality, in the reality of who he is. And that revelation of himself comes from the word of God and Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15. Oh, what's it mean? Implication. What we confess as a local church, what we believe as a church, what we practice as a church, what we sing as a congregation matters in regard to if our worship is acceptable or not. We we can sing all we want words that are meaningless with And and be filled with emotions and, and bring us to tears. But if what we sing is contrary to who he is and what he has done, it is in vain. Humanity's problem is not that it doesn't worship, every one of us loves to worship believers and non believers. We've been created to worship. We have been hardwired by God to worship. Unfortunately, at the fall, humanity chose to worship the wrong thing. And since then, all of humanity, including us, have continued to worship idols instead of the one true God. And none of it, outside of God has ever satisfied a single one of us. Do you know why? Do you know why things outside of the will of God never seem to satisfy? Because the way that God created us and hardwired us is in a way so that nothing outside of himself could satisfy us. And the act of our faith, the application of our faith, is to believe that there is nothing greater or more satisfying than God. Christian. Why are you settling for scraps on the floor when there is a feast on the table right in front of you? Taste and see that he is good. Think think about this passage for a moment. Think about the church on the day of Pentecost and the days preceding, preceding. There was a group of Christians we read about in Acts 2. And they spent time with one another every day. They were taught the word of God every day. They prayed for the kingdom of God to come every day. They took the Lord's Supper. They baptized. They went into each other's homes and worshipped. They sold their properties, their possessions, everything they had in order to help anyone in need. And they devoted their time to worshipping the triune God. And you know what? They were completely content. They were satisfied. As Augustine said, God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless, are restless until it rests in him. Go to Jesus all you who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him, for he is gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Oh, heavenly father god i pray that you were magnified that your redemptive work through christ is made known that even sinners such as us with an unbelief or who have rejected your son god can be forgiven if we if we turn from darkness Turn to the light in Christ that can only be found in Christ. Repent from sin. Understanding that we're not forgiven because we repent from sin. We're only forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ paid for our sins. But those who believe that respond are by faith. And acting out accordingly to turn from those ways of wickedness. And to turn and following Jesus Christ as Lord. And coming into the local church and saying, I have not a clue how to do this. Could somebody come alongside and teach me how to do it? And God, I pray that you would put that desire, not, not just on Cornerstone's heart, but for all of those who sit today to either walk into that local church and say that or to invite someone into the local church to, to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and to show them how to do it faithfully, Lord, with joy.